It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Dr. Stuart Squires. I'm the Associate Director of the Center for Faith and Culture and Associate Professor at the University of St. Thomas in Houston. The Center for Faith and Culture brings the Catholic voice to the ongoing conversation about the meaning of life and the liberty and pursuit of happiness we hold in common as Americans. Today's guest is Dr. Damian Costello. Uh, Dr. Costello received his PhD in theological studies from the University of Dayton and specializes in the intersection of Catholic theology, indigenous spiritual traditions, and colonial history. He is an international expert on the life and legacy of Nicholas Black Elk and the author of Black Elk, Colonialism and Lakota Catholicism. Costello uh, uh, his work is informed by five years of ethnographic work on the Navajo Nation and is the director of postgraduate studies at NAIITS, an indigenous learning community. He is a founding member of the American co-chair uh, of the Indigenous Catholic Research Fellowship and a frequent contributor to U.S. Catholic and America magazine. First of all, Dr. Costello, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'd like to have a conversation today about uh, uh, Catholicism, uh, the um, indigenous or, or native uh, peoples. Um, the Catholic Church, of course, is universal, but it manifests itself in a variety of cultural expressions. On this podcast, we've done a variety of episodes, for example, such as uh, uh, the Maronite Rite, uh, the Catholic Charismatic Renewal, African-American Catholicism. Uh, so different ways that, that the universal church manifests herself uh, in different cultural groups. Um, so let's just start with a, a very broad question. Uh, can you talk a bit about the history of, of Catholic evangelization of indigenous peoples in North America? Uh, I, I know that's a big question. You can take it in any direction you want, but um, uh, the, the first um, encounters of native peoples with Europeans when they when they came when they came over. Well, if we're looking at the U.S., um, you have sort of two strands going on, often in competition with one another. So, on the the one hand, which is oftentimes the way that native communities first encountered Catholicism, was 
uh, on the ground with missionaries that were acting independent of the state and even other indigenous Catholics bringing the message to other indigenous communities. So for example, um, the Salish who lived in the Rocky Mountains, they encountered Catholicism from Mohawk Catholic trappers who were working for the Northwest Company in the early 1800s. And so the Mohawk, um, if, you're, if your listeners will probably be familiar, St. Kateri or St. Kateri, who's our feast day today. Oh, okay. Um, they've been Catholic for a couple hundred years and very thoroughly Catholic, yet very completely Mohawk. And they showed up and practiced their Catholicism. There's about 24 of them. And the Salish were like, wow, this is, this is a really interesting uh, message you're bringing here. Some, it's a very good spiritual way. We would like that. And so they sent four delegations all the way to St. Louis to ask for missionaries until finally Father Pierre de Smet volunteered, and this is in the 1840s, and journeyed out to them. So they encountered Catholicism independent of Europeans, independent of the U.S. government, and were very intrigued by it. Not necessarily everyone. You know, it's a, it's a range of responses like in any community. Uh, but there were people who were very intrigued with, with the gospel, the message of Christ. Now, on the other side, we have the message being brought as part of a government program. And this is really a big tragedy. It's been in the news lately, particularly in Canada, with the news of the discovery of unmarked graves at two former residential schools, Kamloops and Calasis, uh, First Nations. And the U.S. government is part of the conquest of, of the continent um, decided that, well, we shouldn't probably eradicate all of them. There were, there were plenty of voices that said, let's just kill them all. Let's get rid of these people. They're in our way. But there were, at the time, people who would have been considered reformers who said, well, no, you know, they're human beings. They can, they can become like us. We can civilize them. And so the U.S. government came up with a program to export American culture to try and turn Native peoples into good rural farmers. And part of that was Christianization. And so the reservations were divided up among the churches, and some of them were assigned to Catholics. And so Native peoples also encountered Catholicism, oftentimes in communities that had already encountered it, and maybe you were even Catholic on some level, had this program of enforcement that was wrapped up in this government program. So those are the sort of two main ways that Native communities encountered Catholicism historically in the U.S. You'd mentioned earlier that uh, St. Kateri's feast day is today. Just for our audience to know, we're recording on July 14th. So so um, this is, uh, I didn't plan it this way. So this is wonderful. Um, so St. Kateri, pray for us. Uh, first Native American Amen. saints, is that is that correct? Am I correct on that? She's the first. And uh, are there other Native American saints? Yes. Uh, St. Juan Diego, who... Oh, oh, sure, sure, sure. Right, who received a message from uh, the Virgin of Guadalupe. Right. And uh, there are other others on the way that are in process, including Nicholas Black Elk, who is uh, currently servant of God. I definitely want to talk about Black Elk in a bit, but before we get to that, so uh, I'd mentioned earlier that you uh, had lived on a Navajo reservation for five years. I'm sure you have countless stories you could tell. Um, 
Could you share some of uh, aspects of the Navajo Catholic tradition that come to mind that sort of move you deeply? Well, the, the Navajo Catholic experience is a little different than other, I mean, they're all, all tribal uh, manifestations of Catholicism are, are unique, you know, according to the people. Um, one of the fascinating things about it is that the earliest uh, ethnographers among the Navajo people were Franciscans. They came out uh, right to the middle of the reservation and they really immersed themselves in the culture and the language. And, and, and Navajo language is from the Athapaskan um, branch, which is outsiders find it very, very difficult to learn. And I will be in the front of the line to say that it is a very complicated language, very different from what we're used to in uh, romance languages. But they, uh, in sort of partnering with the community, they produce some of the best sources that we have about all the very complex ceremonial life of the Navajo people. And so that was always an inspiration to me that the pastors there, while they maybe didn't fully understand the Navajo traditions, and they maybe didn't quite understand enculturation and contextualization that, in the way that we do today, they were deeply interested in Navajo life ways. And um, what is unique, I think, about Navajo Catholicism is that the ceremonial life, the traditional life is still extremely strong. And so Catholicism is in a context of deep conversation with those life ways that are still very vibrant. Uh, every Catholic community brings its own special gifts to the body of Christ. Um, when you think about the gifts that, that Native peoples, maybe specifically the Navajo, but any uh, other uh, Native group, uh, the gifts that they bring to the church, whether those are metaphysical or cultural or ethical, social, artistic, whatever, whatever comes to mind. What are some of the special gifts that they bring to the body of Christ? I think the most beautiful gift that has really um, spoken to me personally, but I see it um, in a lot of people, is the sort of default spirituality that Native a lot of native communities still retain, you know, we live in a world that we split things up into, you know, very fine distinctions. We have, we, we know what's secular. We know when we can talk about God, we know when we're not supposed to talk about God. We know what, where God should be and where he shouldn't be. And, you know, it seems like those areas get smaller and smaller and in a native context, everything relates to God. Um, Patrick Mason, who's he's Osage and he's, on the, the board of the Knights of Columbus. And he, he likes to say, we have a ceremony for everything, mm. everything that we do traditionally. And that informs how we relate to our Catholic spirituality as well. And so he'll say, you know, if you go to a suburban parish, a lot of us, you know, we might have a hard time believing like, is that actually Jesus there in, in the host? <laughs> yeah. And we have all these voices that tell us, no, it can't possibly be. And he'll say, you know what? You go to an average native community, they'll have no problem with that because they know the spirits work in everything. The creator's all around us, particularly in the natural world. Yeah, that, that your, your, your answer there makes me think of uh, Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, and he talks about uh, 
you know, how in Western civilization over the past 500 years, uh, or I sh maybe I should say European civilization, uh, pointing to this sort of idea of secularism that you're talking about, that we live in a sort of, uh, I'm trying to think of what the term he uses, um, but 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 disenchanted, I think, is the word he used. Mm -hmm. that, that when we Europeans or, or people who come from European ancestry look at the world, it's a disenchanted world, right? That creation is nothing more than uh, a resource to be exploited for our for our comfort, um, and, and definitely that that idea of an, of an enchanted a world enchanted, charged with the grandeur of God. Um, needs to be re, re, rediscovered among Europeans and European um, uh, descendants. So, uh, you know, I think, I know I personally could sort of tap into that. Uh, so I, I think that's really wonderful that they are able to offer maybe that antidote to that, that disenchantment. I but, just would like to add that, you know, there's, I am speaking of myself personally, uh, but I would encourage listeners to think about this, you know, the first sort of, impetus to start to allow my world to be re-enchanted came from these uh, native cultures and native Catholicism, but it got me to sort of look at my own tradition in a new light. You know, for example, I've always heard about angels. Mm -hmm. And for me, well, and when you're a kid, you hear about guardian angels, of course. Right. And then you hear the stories of um, in the Bible of messengers coming. And so you, we always have this default understanding that somehow angels jump from outside of this purely secular, neutral, non-spiritual world. And they, they jump in here, but you can't really explain how, and they're not really part of this world. Well, I was shocked to find out when you look at the tradition, the church fathers and, and even people, great theologians like Aquinas talk about how angels act in and sort of govern the natural world. Mm -hmm. The church fathers taught that the stars were moved by angels. And there's this great sermon by um, St. John Henry Newman who talks about the angels of nature and how they infuse everything around us, those hidden presences. And that's something that uh, we don't just need, we don't have to appropriate from the outside. It's something mm -hmm. for us to relearn that was already there and is still there. And it's just waiting to be understood and, and lived anew. Can you talk uh, more about this and give more examples maybe of how living among the Navajo helped you personally uh, deal with this problem of disenchantment mm -hmm. and sort of maybe uh, uh, rejuvenated this, this uh, reality or understanding of reality that the world is charged with the grandeur of God? Oh, there's this one of the most famous Navajo prayers. It's actually a song. All, almost all um, Navajo uh, prayers are sung. And this, this ends um, great ceremony that lasts many days, right? And you sing it in the morning and it's, you, listeners may have heard it. It's beauty behind me, beauty before me, beauty behind mm. on my side, on my, on my right, my left, above me, right. below me, beauty all around. Everything is finished in beauty. And they repeat that four times. And so, of course, I, I heard this and I'm like, well, I, I never heard that before. And probably every one of your listeners has heard it before St. Patrick's breastplate, right? Except he says, Christ, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ to the left of me, Christ to my right, Christ below me, Christ above me, Christ in 
the mouth of everybody who speaks at me on and on and on. And of course, we also know um, great theologians talk about Christ being the beautiful. And so, you know, I'm on the reservation thinking about this. Like, wow, that's, there's something going on here. Um, and at some point, I don't know, this was totally independent of um, thinking about the Navajo, but I looked up what my last name meant. And I knew it was Irish and I didn't really know much about it. And I looked it up and one of the uh, definitions of it is the deer-like people. Mm. And so I started to research, well, deer are really important in Celtic culture. Mm-hmm. And the Navajo introduced themselves by telling their four clans, each of their grandparents, starting with their mother's mother. And one of the clans is the deer, the deer people. There's a bunch of different clans that are associated with the deer. It's like, well, that's kind of interesting, right? If you look back at a lot of um, European culture and tradition, you have the same things happening. So in digging into um, Irish and Celtic tradition and early Catholic theology, you have very, very, a very similar spirituality going on where St. Patrick, for example, when he says that prayer, he turns into a deer to escape uh, a pagan king who was, who was coming to kill him because he lit uh, the Paschal fire. There's native North America is filled with stories of people who turn into animals and turn back. And so I'm just beginning that part of my own personal spiritual journey, but particularly Irish Catholicism, we have a very good record of what happened when the faith came to a tribal people, because the Irish were never conquered by Rome. They were always independent. They were never uh, imperialized. And so they retained a a much older, much more traditional culture. There is um, a difficult issue uh, of the historical relationship, uh, and and not just historical, but in some ways uh, ongoing, between the question of uh, evangelization of Native peoples, which we started talking about, uh, and colonialism. Uh, and I think one way of seeing that manifest that tension is just a few years ago, Unipero Serra was canonized as a as a saint. But then last summer, there's a statue in California that was torn down when when a lot of statues were being torn down. Um, uh, I don't know how many uh, you know, people that tore that statue down really knew much about Unipero Serra in, in a sophisticated way. Uh, and I certainly wouldn't expect you to give a definitive answer on the question of, in just you know a few minutes of the relationship between evangelization and colonialization. But maybe you can give a couple of ideas or pointers about how we should be thinking about this difficult issue of the coming together of evangelization and colonialism. You know, I think it's it's something that it's we have to start thinking about untangling. I think it's easy as um, for those of us who don't have, who haven't felt the effects of this, right. Who have had the benefit or the liability of just sort of inhabiting the middle American uh, community and just enjoying the fruits of this very violent and problematic encounter. We don't see how the interests and the goals of, people who were really at their core interested in making money 
at all costs. That was a big part of Western expansion. Um, worked to take over church spaces, church authority, and the message itself. So you had, and this is a very short summary, but even from the very beginning when the Spanish first showed up in the New World, the first people to start start conquering really didn't have any interest or connection to the faith at all. And the first people to oppose it came out of a very deep reforming thrust of the Catholic Church. I mean, these were people who fasted eight months a year, the Dominicans um, who first came over to the New World. And then, you know, Bartolome de las Casas is the most famous um, sure. leader of that movement. They were the first people to be really taking their faith intentionally in the New World. And they said, this is just obviously wrong. What happened was those who were conquering, who were, who were bent on you know, enslaving people in order to make money, realized that they had to sort of package what they were doing in a way that could sell the king and the, and the general population on the morality of it, the justification of it. And so it really transformed our faith. In a new way, if you just look at slavery, you know, it's very commonly accepted that it wasn't our attitudes about race that started slavery. Rather, it was the practice of slavery that really transformed and created a lot of our ideas about race that were really at their core designed to justify the reality of the gospel, the teachings of the gospel, that all people are human beings. Mm -hmm. That's what it comes down to. Well, these people are not human beings for various reasons. So <clears throat> when it comes to this question, I would just urge people to open your heart. This is not something that comes from the outside of our faith. This is not a way to take terror down our faith. These are questions that we ask because of our faith historically. I am very confident, having studied this, that if if the faith was not there and there weren't people committed to it, we would not have asked these questions in the past, and we would not be asking them today in the way that we are. I'd mentioned earlier that you wrote a book called Black Elk, Colonialism and Lakota Catholicism, published by Orvis uh, Books. Um, and you had mentioned that he is uh, on the road to canonization. Um, tell us who Black Elk was and why is he an important figure? Nicholas Black Elk is, he's really one of the unique figures in, in all of human history, in part because most people up until recently had no idea he was Catholic. They knew he was, uh, they knew his story through Black Elk Speaks, probably the most famous book about um, a native North American out there. He was his second cousin of crazy horse. He was at the battle of little Bighorn. He was at the battle of wounded knee. And his story is one of this young boy who had this amazing vision. He was taken up into the sky for 12 days and given this call to save his people. And so his whole life, he's, he's trying to discern this. How do I do this in the context of my whole world, basically collapsing being taken from me. And so you, you get this beautiful, compelling vision of the Lakota world 
and all these iconic events that as Americans, you just hear about all the time. Well, the, the story ends at uh, the Wounded Knee when he was just 25, and it gives the impression that he was this defeated old man, and he had given up, and he had never done anything with his vision. Well, it turns out that at the age of 40, he became Catholic and became a very uh, prominent lay leader in his community. He was attributed with bringing 400 people into the church. He was long-term missionary to other tribes. He was famous for his ability to preach. Like he, he could memorize scripture and, and really relate it in the Lakota context. And he was, had the spiritual presence about him that bridged all the artificial divides that had been imposed on his people and on him personally. Like it didn't matter who you were, you could, whether you're a Lakota person, if you were his neighbor that, that, um, you know, you have disputes about your, your cattle and where they're grazing or a former enemy from a different tribe or sort of a starry eyed Easterner who's looking for native wisdom or just your average white cattle rancher in the next County. He, he was able to bridge those differences and transcend the pain of this history and offer a transformative vision of how to move forward, which essentially was the, the power of the gospel and um, the new life in Christ, but just completely infused with the beauty of the Lakota tradition. I think at the beginning of your answer, I think you said that a lot of people didn't know or n nobody knew that he was Catholic until recently. Why, why was that? If, if he was known in his day, um, I mean, I'm get, and you told it, you talked about him sort of uh, being interested in mission and, and spreading the news about the gospel. So how, how or why is it that people didn't know he was Catholic? Well, so local people did. That memory was retained. Um, his relatives knew that. And there are some relatives who even didn't like that. You know, there are plenty of, of Lakota people, particularly today, who have ambivalent feelings about the church. But at, during his time and, and in the aftermath, that's how he was known. Uh, he was even dismissed by a couple of people as like, well, he's just a cigar store Indian because he's, he's a church guy. Um, the reason why outsiders didn't know is because the book portrayed him um, as sort of in this pre-contact romanticized way. You know, that's one thing that we as settler folks just continually impose onto, onto natives, on indigenous people, that in our imagination, you're only indigenous to the degree that you appear so to me, which means like, if you got the feathers, if you're dancing, um, if you are, have the blood quantum, then you're a real native. But like all peoples, like all of us, we change very quickly, right? We are unrecognizable probably to our grandparents in so many different ways, but we're still who we are. We're still American. We don't have to, we don't have to prove ourselves. Anyway, so that romanticization and portrayal of Black Elk as somebody who died with wounded knee, uh, because it's a great story. It's, it's a romantic story to imagine great battles and finality and... Um, to not have to do the work of 
surviving in the contemporary world. And so in the 80s, it first came out. Um, this is Michael Stoutenkamp. He's a Jesuit who was on Pine Ridge, ended up meeting his daughter and started interviewing her. And he was there be because he was interested in the Black Elk Speaks, the native version of, of Black Elk. And he's asking her all these questions about, oh, what did he talk about the Sundance? And, and she's like, well, you know, I guess he said this, but he didn't talk about that that much. It's finally got frustrated. He's like, what did he talk about? Oh, he talked about the church. Mm -hmm. And so he, through interviewing her and then um, all the elders who he worked with and that were still alive, brought forward a, the sort of rich portrayal of the second half of his life. And then the other way, I guess there's three ways people started to, to, to learn this is that the transcripts from the interviews were published, which showed the ways in which um, Black Elk's words were, they were not intentionally misrepresented, I wouldn't say, but they were packaged to, again, reinforce this romanticized image of the pre-contact native and also to heighten the tragedy and suffering of, of the story. And then finally was the cause for canonization. The, his grandson, George Looks Twice, brought forward a petition for his canonization in the Catholic Church. And that started, it was approved by the local bishop of Rapid City and then the USCCB in 2017, I believe. And so that's when the, the broader world started to take his Catholicism seriously. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. So you were saying that, I forgot the Jesuit priest's name, but back in the 80s, he interviewed uh, Black Elk's daughter. And then it sounds like other scholars like you sort of interested in his Catholicism. But it's not till I think you said 2017 when his grandson brings the case for canonization. So it sounds to me like... Um, there's a great interest in his Catholicism among, you know, the Jesuit priest and you and other scholars, but initially his family didn't sound to be all that interested in sort of setting the record straight and saying, no, he, he was a Catholic and, and there's this misportrayal of him um, because of sort of that earlier book. Uh, am I correct in that? And if so, why was it that initially his family didn't seem to be all that interested in sort of clearing up the record and saying he was a devout Catholic? I would say um, to clarify, there's, there's really two sides to the Black Elk family and uh, they, they could speak more clearly about this. Um, but there is a more Catholic side of the family that, that, that recognizes his his conversion in Catholic life as completely sincere and unequivocal and just sort of as obvious as the the air you breathe. And I tend to sympathize with that perspective more. But there are also uh, there's also a side of the family that is a little more suspicious of this that would point to the benefits that he received. Right, this was a paid position. Um, not that well paid, but it was sure. paid and it, you got more freedom. Um, native religion was suppressed. I mean, Indians, Native Americans did not have religious freedom until the 70s. No. In a country that was founded on religious freedom, we actively persecuted and outlawed it hmm. for much of the history. Um, but why it wasn't sort of clarified is our stories about Indians and, and, you know, Native Americans 
they they have rather limited effect on the people who live it. You know, you can hear you'll hear members of the Black Elk family today who will say, "I've never even read the book." Right? Mm-hmm. This that's something I don't need that. Right? Um, these are my this is my family. These are my family stories, and it's also whether what you whatever you think about the sincerity of this Catholicism, it's not the conundrum that somebody like I would first be faced with. When I first heard he was Catholic, I couldn't make sense of this because for me, again, this romanticized perspective, the real native doesn't doesn't join the quote unquote white man's religion. Right. Right. Um, but in native communities, you have a broad spectrum of people, uh, many whom are deeply and sincerely engaged in Christianity, all kinds of different forms of Christianity. So it's not some sort of big mystery to be solved in the way that I think a lot of outsiders, um, you know, would, would have. And then finally, you know, unfortunately, up until recently, native voices only get heard when we allow them to be right you know nobody's that's this wasn't anybody's question so nobody talked about it nobody reported it i mean it's in the records he wrote he wrote letters for the catholic newspaper in lakota that's just Mm -hmm. it's all in the archives um, for anybody to see but these weren't our questions and so we didn't ask them and therefore we don't know about it uh, you brought up earlier the recent news stories about uh, religious schools that also were uh, Canadian schools in particular and discovery of unmarked grave in schools. Um, I try not in this podcast to get too caught up in uh, the headlines, which change every day. Um, but these news stories have brought up a variety of issues. We talked about the sort of history of, of evangelization and, and colonialism and how those two often went hand in hand. Um, but what, what this, these news stories recently sort of bring up is, okay, the lingering pain still today for many uh, Native peoples. So uh, in general, can you talk about the sort of the current state of Catholic Native peoples? What do they continue to struggle with? What are their lingering wounds? But also, you know, I don't want to just focus on the negative things. What are, what are the joys? What are the special graces that, that they uh, today uh, uh, have or receive? Yeah, that's a great question. A lot of ways you go with that. And, um, you know, as an outsider who, you know, participates in these different circles, but, um, you know, I don't speak for anybody. Uh, I think there's, there's frustration by different people for a lot of different reasons. I think one thing that would be most surprising to people is that there's a good percentage of Catholic Native Americans, you know, 25%, the, the numbers are, that are given are 25% of Native Americans identify as Catholic. Um, and of those 25%, I don't know what the percentage is, but I think people would be surprised about how many sort of unapologetic native Catholics there are. Mm-hmm. Now there are plenty who are frustrated with the church, frustrated with the history. Um, but there are plenty who will be very vocal about their proud Catholic faith and would not um, feel the need to, you know, apologize about some of this history in the ways that others would. Um, 
so the, to take serious that there is deep Christian Catholic faith in Native communities. Um, I think, you know, one of the unfortunate things about the history, which informs today, is that so many people's experience with the faith is now connected to the, the residential schools and the trauma that comes out of it. Right. And, and I, we just, we can't understand this. I mean, I, I know living on the reservation and, and having our children out there, and, and I was a stay-at-home dad, it wasn't until I was there and I was with my kids all day long and realized how much tactile, ongoing, physical love is necessary for the well-being of children that I could understand, begin to have a taste of the full impact of what happened. You know, it's easier to see on the surface the sort of eradication of culture and taking away of language, even if we haven't experienced it. But if you can imagine a child, think of your child taken away from your love and your community's love for months and years at a time, the effect that that has and how, how, uh, what a great challenge it is to, to enter into an adult, adulthood with that emotional deficit, but not having the training in how to be a parent because you didn't experience that. And so, so many people's... Um, connection to the church and, and encounter with a faith is, is connected to that. And this, the saddest thing of all is that a lot of, I don't know the numbers, but anecdotally, I can say the, the head of um, black and Indian missions, father Henry Sands, who's enrolled in, uh, I think three different communities. Um, he's native on both sides. He's from Michigan, archdiocese, archdiocese of Michigan. His grandparents were taken away and they, they were already Christian. Like the, the justification for these, and they were already functioning farmers within the modern economy. All the justifications for taking them away didn't even exist. Right. And so they, they, this faith that had already been planted and lived and was flowering suddenly got connected with this really traumatic, um, damaging experience. So I, that's maybe some of the, uh, that's a difficulty. What is, what is the beauty of it? I think um, in these communities, you know, we should remember that probably about over half natives live in urban environments off the reservation, sure. but, but in uh, worship spaces, in native communities, and even native spaces, worship spaces in the urban areas, there's a very full-bodied rich engagement with spirituality. It may be a little contentious. There may be disagreements like on the reservation between people who are just traditional or people who participate in the both. And how do you work that out? But you're always around it. You're always being, the God is always being talked about spirituality. And so it engages you in a way unlike, I think most standard American spaces. And the way that Native practices are incorporated into Catholic life is very beautiful, the way they are enculturated um, into the Catholic Mass. What do those of us who do not come from Native peoples, what do we need to keep in mind or be sensitive about? Uh, or what 
what should we know that we don't know? If there's one thing that you sort of shake your fist and say, you know, Native peoples don't know X, Y, and Z, and if they just understood this, uh, then there would be, you know, doors would open of communication or, or understanding. What, 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 what's one thing that we don't know that we should know? Um, well, first I'd, I'd clarify that I, I don't ever, I hope I don't ever shake my fist. Okay, I, um, sure, sure. You know, this is, I think the longer personally that I have been interested in this topic and been in these different spaces, the more sort of overwhelming the history and the implications are and how you never quite get it right. Now, at the same time, I should say, don't let that intimidate you. I would say two things. One is to recognize that this is not a question for people on the other side of the country in very remote places that are in quote unquote Indian country. It's all around us, sure. right? It may be sub submerged or hidden or erased more clearly in some places, but Indian country is everywhere. Native peoples are everywhere. And so recognize that. Learn what the history of your area is where you live. Learn what happened. And learn what opportunities there are to start doing things differently. You can't fix everything. Nobody is going to be able to do that. But we can all sort of maybe take this issue seriously. And I, the way I like to put it is um, the, the sort of deepest lesson I learned um, being on the Navajo Nation and, and sort of living within that space was that it requires the acceptance of a certain kind of vulnerability. I call it authentic vulnerability to these questions and to these spaces that I think for some people, it can be intimidating to put yourself in these spaces and to take seriously this history. Oh, what are people going to think of me? I'm a, I'm not native. I'm a settler. I'm maybe I'm connected to some of the perpetrators of the more the tougher part of this history. I encourage people to, to give that up and to just say, I'm going to offer myself into this space and into this story. I'm not going to have any predetermined ideas of what's going to come out of it, but I'm going to be authentically who I am so that I can engage these questions and meet people on this journey. And I guarantee you good things will come out of that. I always like to ask scholars when you when you write a book or an article, you you spend uh, months, if not years, working on a particular project or give a give your lifetime to a particular topic. Um, what attracts you uh, to Black Elk or or writing and studying uh, and even living among the Navajo for five years? What is it that that excites you about this work? Um. Well, I think when it comes particularly to this, this area, you know, I think that's part of our American story. You know, if you look at how we tell the story, how America tells a story of, of Native Americans, we always insert ourselves into it. You know, if you think about most of the movies up until recently, right? I mean, you're probably old enough that you remember Dances with Wolves. Sure. Right. Or Last of the Mohicans. Well, you may not notice it right off because it's just natural for us, but the main characters are white. Mm -hmm. They're not native. 
and you know of course that's a problem like native stories should just be told in and of themselves but i think the small positive of that is that we know we want to be in this story we know that there's something about native culture <clears throat> native cultures that we're missing right and if you think of you know settlers when they first came to the u.s and they're on the frontier and they were often the poorest they were often the most downtrodden and they would be on the frontier and then these seemingly mythical beings would show up that were totally in tune with the environment they could appear and disappear at will they could survive off the land and there you are sort of scratching to survive um with your five or ten species you know crops and and uh livestock animals you were radically you were radically away you were not at home you were not indigenous to that place in the way that your ancestors were back in ireland or back anywhere and i think we still retain that deep yearning to become indigenous to this place we know that we're not totally at home yet and so what excites me is that possibility that maybe we all could learn to call this our home in a way that uh, somehow addressed this history and somehow addressed the ongoing challenges in quote unquote Indian country, but also addressed is the deep deficits I think we have in our own communities. I'd mentioned that you are the director of postgraduate studies at NAIITS, or I don't know if you guys say NAITS. Uh, we do. An indigenous learning community. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us about uh, the work of that organization. Oh, NAITS is a wonderful, wonderful learning community that started um, in the early 90s, I think, when a number of, it came out of a sort of evangelical background, native natives from both Canada and the U.S. who had been, they, they had a conversion experience uh, in sort of an evangelical gospel that told them they had to change who they are, right? Sort of a Billy Graham, um, you know, wear your suit and try and get to the suburbs Christianity, right? which they was very transformative to them. But at some point they realized, like, wait a minute, why do I have to convert my culture when I convert to Christ, when I accept Christ? That's not what he's asking us to do. And so there was this big gathering, I think it was in New Zealand, and they will tell the story better than me. I was not there. Um, but, but there were native peoples from across the globe, indigenous people came together for the sort of the first time to be Christian in their own skin, in their own culture, wear their own dress, sing their own songs. And they came back from that and like, you know what? We, that is the message we need to, to bring to our communities. And so they eventually um, started a academic program. This is the early 2000s. And we recently um, got news that we received accreditation from the Association of Theological Schools oh, nice. to deliver, deliver master's degrees and our doctoral degree um, without partners. We'll probably keep our partners. So what it is, Nate's used to stand for the North American Institute of Indigenous Theological Studies, but uh, it was changed 
because we wanted to reflect the, uh, our, our non-hierarchical nature of our community and the fact that we are also expanding to Australia, New Zealand, and the, the Philippines right now, offering our programming there, that really, in the Catholic way, we would call it enculturation. How do we, how do we enculturate the faith within different cultural contexts or any cultural context? I mean, our faith is enculturated in middle America. We just don't think of it that way. Sure. They would use the language of contextualization. And we deliver everything virtually, which started before COVID. So we were ahead of the game on that. <laughs> and we're trying, to, we're trying to take the best of the Christian theological tradition and the best of native indigenous cultures um, from across Turtle Island, from North America, but now Australia and New Zealand and other places and put them together, sort of like St. Thomas did with Aquinas and Aristotle. Right. We, uh, final question. We are a people of hope, specifically hope in the resurrection. Uh, when you look to the future of Catholic Native peoples, um, what brings you hope? Um, I think what brings me hope is, you know, if you really inhabit the history and, and the tragedy, you, you can't express it. But the hope is, is that the Native peoples have survived. And they've survived not just, you know, because there are descendants of people that lived here before Europeans and others showed up, but because their community survived. And their faith which started from the beginning, from the beginning, there were always people who were intrigued by this message, who lived it out, who wanted it, and were there to challenge the ways in which it was co-opted for injustice lives on. And so I know there's lots of people who struggle with their faith when they think about um, the questions of injustices and, you know, colonial history. My, the hope that I experience in this story are the people who come forward and say, no, Jesus didn't cause this. In fact, he's the answer. And so in the case of Black Elk, maybe the good way to finish, um, his first encounter, he had two encounters with, with Christ and Christianity before he became Catholic. The first is he signed up for the Wild West show, Buffalo Bill Cody, and went to Europe for three years and um, had these very deep conversations with different um, Christian leaders on a sort of a mutual, mutual footing. And then he came home, right after he came home, the ghost tent showed up, which was essentially a native reading and embodiment of, Christi of um, the Christian message. And, and the, the, the core message was that Jesus was, was native and he was coming back and he was going to bring a new heaven and new earth. A buffalo would be brought back and, and the dead relatives would live. And he had a vision of the native Christ. And in the Lakota translation it's wanikia he who makes live and that's the term that in catholic circles and other christian churches they used for savior that was jesus's title both in the ghost dance which was completely separate from any missionaries or any europe uh, american influence and it was the same in the in those early catholic and christian communities 
it's always been there. And that, that vision uh, brings me a lot of hope. And I think there's a lot of us not, that are, there's a lot for us non-natives to be inspired by, to be led to a better future in this story. If anybody's interested in getting in contact with you or learning more about Nate's and the programming that Nate's has, uh, how can they reach out to you? Are you guys on social media? Uh, we are. We're about to launch our new website. And so hopefully that'll be up by the time you're hearing this. Um, you can find me online. Um, I'm a speaker here with the Vermont Humanities Council and, and New Hampshire Humanities Council. And that has my contact information there. I, one of these days I'll get around to putting a website together, I think. But <laughs> us, us academics, we get sometimes lost in the details. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Again, the name of the book is Black Elk, Colonialism, and Lakota Catholicism, published by Orbis Books. Dr. Costello, thank you so much for joining me. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, Dr. Squires, and, and it was great to be with you and to share a little bit of my work. It is not hard to see that Western culture is in the midst of a crisis. St. John Paul II described this crisis as a culture of death, and Pope Francis has described it as a throwaway culture. Despite this crisis, there is hope because the gospel is the prophetic voice crying out in our cultural wilderness. For over 10 years, the MA in Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas in Houston has transformed lay students who want to be the change in our culture by immersing them in the intellectual patrimony of the Catholic Church. In this graduate program that is now online as well as on campus, Students are equipped with the wisdom of the Catholic theological, moral, social, and spiritual traditions. Our students come from a variety of backgrounds, including different personal experiences, professional experiences, stages in life, and educational histories. What brings them together is their shared passion to grow intellectually and spiritually through immersion in the best texts that the Catholic tradition has to offer. For more information, Google the Center for Faith and Culture at the University of St. Thomas.